Hi, this is David Olavsky, and welcome to the Rabbi Olavsky Show. And uh, whether you're watching with our friends over at Torah Anytime, or wherever you watch or listen to your podcasts, as always, it's a pleasure to have you along. And uh, we are sponsored this week uh, by an anonymous sponsor, who is a good, good friend of the show, a good friend of the uh, the Revialoski family. And, uh, you know, as we go into the new year, this should be a year of bracha and hatzlacha for him and his family and his loved ones. So this is it. This is the last show before Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah is coming. Rosh Hashanah Yikasevun Ubiyam Tzayim Kippayechasemun Everything's written on Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara says three books are open. If you're Tzadigamor, you get written in the Book of Life. And if you're a Russia, then you get written in the Book of not life. Life impaired. And if you're a Benini, you get written in the Benini book. Now, what do you need a book of Benini for? The Quran continues, we wait until Yom Kippur. And if you're a Zoycha, then you go into the Sefer Chaim. And if not, you go into the Sefer Mavis. So, it's really just a temp file. I don't know, why do we have to have a book? So the answer is because Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Adin, and you cannot come out of Rosh Hashanah without a din. You need a din. It is a judgment for you, for Klai Yisrael, for the entire world. Everything is written on that day. It's sealed on Yom Kippur, but it's all written. Once it's, once it's written, it's something official. And so there has to be a safer for everybody. There has to be a din that you got going into Rosh Hashanah, whatever that might be. So, we spoke about this before Shoshana uh, years ago. Years ago. It's, it's interesting in this podcast, we can talk about years. We're coming on to our fourth anniversary. You know, we started Parshas Noah, and uh, we're going to have a, a fourth anniversary. It's pretty amazing. Four years of this. Uh, I I never thought that this would last this long. <laughs> and I'm, I'm always surprised uh, how many people get chizik from this. And, you know, Moshe Shapiro said to me once, if you can do anything today that gives people chizik, you're mechuyif to do it. So if it can give people chizik, and I know people get chizik from this, it's a tremendous thing. So I spoke about this years ago. And that's the idea of the simonim on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, it's mentioned in the Gemara. And the Gemara says, Simonim Milsehi, that it's something real, the Simonim. And uh, when I uh, was growing up, we had Chal on honey and apple on honey. That's what we did. And uh, we didn't have all the fancy things. As Time went on, of course, and I guess these things became more available. I guess maybe that was it more than anything else, because uh, 
you know, people said, why uh, in Eastern Europe was there a minig to use potato for carpus? And I've mentioned my father used onion for carpus. And the answer is that's all they had. They had root vegetables. Hanukkah, they fried it in oil. In uh, Pesach, they pretended it was a green vegetable. And uh, the rest of the time, they uh, used it as furniture. But that was it. That's all they had was potatoes and onions, beets. They eat borscht, you know. Uh, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, green leafy vegetables. That's why people who come from uh, Poland, they didn't use uh, romaine lettuce. They used horseradish root because it was a, it was a root. Things that can grow in the frozen earth. That's uh, that was what was popular in Eastern Europe, where we spent such a long time. But um, but now everything is is available. So I want to do something I haven't done in a long time before I start talking about uh, modicum of content. And if you remember, it was during the first year when somebody said, "I don't know um, why you call this a show. It's not really a show. It's a sheer." And I said, no, it's really a show. <laughs> and that's, in fact, become our tagline. You know, it's a, it's a show, not a sheer. Yeah. Uh, because I could talk about anything I want. And at the time, I said, if I decide to give some recipes, I'll give recipes. So uh, these recipes are not from my mother, obviously, because we only used apple and honey. And I can give you that recipe. Take an apple, cut it into pieces, and dip it in honey. So that's doesn't really take, like, you know, a lot of culinary skill. But uh, to decide what to do with all the different things. So I want to run through what we do with it, if these things speak to you or not. First of all, beets. Nice, fresh beets. So first of all, put on a plastic bag on your hands or gloves when you peel the beets because they will stain your hand. A little piece of advice if you don't work with beets. Then cut them up thin. That's what we do. And then put the slices into a small pot and fill it up with water so that it's a little bit above it. And then add sugar. How much sugar do you add? When you add enough sugar that you say that's ridiculous, add a little bit more. That's how you do it. I don't have an exact amount because it depends how many beets you're making, but the idea is to the point where you say that doesn't make any sense. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, who had a very successful TV show known as Seinfeld. So he later ended up having this kind of strange show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And uh, in each episode, evidently, he would pick up another comic in a different type of a car. And he would give a little, little speech as to why he chose this car for this, for this person. And they would go out and have coffee. Exactly what it says. <laughs> Comedians and cars getting coffee. I wish there was more to it, but there's not. That's it. So um, uh, one show, one of the comedians asked him the following question. They said, how many cars do you actually own? And he paused and he said, not the amount that anybody would say, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) So that's my recipe. Put in sugar where you look at it and you say, wow, that's ridiculous. And then add a little more. And then bring it to a boil and then lower it and let it simmer for a very long time until this mixture thickens. And when it thickens, so then it's going to be soft and it's, it's candied beets. And uh, it's, it's really yummy. People might eat this in real life. So uh, that's what we do with our beets. Um, 
what do we do with a pomegranate? We um, cut the remote up into pieces, give everybody a little piece, and, uh, you know, then they have to, like, suck out the little seeds. If we uh, have a lot of time, which, of course, doesn't apply this year since the first night is uh, Sunday night. You go straight from Shabbos into, into Erev Hashanah. You don't have a lot of time. Um, and it's the longest slichas of the year, of course, right? So, um, uh, but if you have more time, so you can actually seed the pomegranate. There's this little patent that they have in, um, it's right, I guess they have in America too. It's called a Ramon Cedar, which is sort of like this uh, screen and you like bang on it with the Ramon and the seeds come out. And, yeah. So, uh, we talked about this years ago. I remember someone sent me an Eitza when I talked about how you do the Ramon and it gets all over you. So they said, do it in a bowl of water, which I started doing. And then my son said to me, what are you, crazy? And then it loses all its taste because <laughs> all the juice goes into the water. So uh, I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, so that's that's pretty easy. Um, uh, tamarim, uh, you have to check them. Uh, and it's well for sure. Know what the din is in America? You slice it open, check it over, look it up under a light. Uh, if you're a particularly nervous person, give it to somebody who's not so nervous. Because if you're really nervous, you, you'll always find something that looks like a bug. <laughs> so, uh, but if you, I've, I've become a little bit more experienced at this, and uh, you know, so those are your tamarim, and those are your rimonim. Uh, those are the pretty easy ones, you know. I gave you the beets, the apple. We talked about the apple. Um, now you got to get a little more creative. Uh, kara is translated as gourd. Now, there are people who use squash. They use butternut squash, or they use, um, um, I don't know, some other type of squash, but... Here in Israel, they sell these giant green gourds. I didn't know that anybody eats gourds for what I consider to be obvious reasons. That is a giant, tasteless, large uh, thing, green thing. <laughs> so what do you do with it? Cut it up into cubes. Put it in a pot with water that's halfway full, so not just covering it like you do with the beets. And add a lot of sugar. Boil it up for a very, very long time. And then every now and then taste it. If it's still too hard, cook it some more. If it's not sweet enough, keep adding sugar. That's it. I haven't come up with anything more cleverer than that. Um, leeks. What do you do with leeks? Um, we cheat. I'll tell you up front. I actually looked up some recipes on how to make leeks. And they have these roasted leeks, and you can make it like this, and uh, um, silan, you know, different kind of things you can do with it. We put it in our chicken soup, and then we take it out, and we give everybody a little piece. Now, you got to be careful here, because that makes it fleshic. And now you can't just put it on the plate with, let's say, you know, your fish head. Yeah? That's a little bit of a problem. So... um so you got to figure out, uh, you know, have to serve that a little separately. Okay. Now we come to Rubia. <laughs> the art school translates Rubia as fenugreek. 
Fenugreek is this very spicy thing that they make chilba out of. I don't know how you would possibly make it uh, sweet. Here in Israel, they use black-eyed peas. Now, I saw a video years ago of one of the companies, and I don't remember which one, so I don't want to say for sure, where they sold frozen, um, I think it was checked, um, rubia beans. And this guy had the bag and was literally slicing them open with a uh, razor blade and there were bugs inside of them, which I found quite disconcerting. So, uh, so I have to say, over the years, and we used to actually buy black-eyed peas, and then somebody had the job of shelling them, and then we would have to cut them in half and check them, etc. Uh, now I go to, um, uh, I used to go to Base Israel, but they don't sell it separately. You have to buy it on a whole plate with everything else, and I don't need everything else. But um, I found Hadar uh, Geula. Uh, you can buy a container of uh, of the rupee that they make, it's not very expensive, and it was a game changer. Every now and then, there are things that come along that really uh, change the quality of my life. <laughs> Buying the rubia already made is one of them, right? Okay. Um, so we set up before the, the Suda starts a little plate for everybody there with a piece of uh, Rimon and a piece of Tamar, a piece of leek, the rubia, and the kara, and the beets. We have it all set up already. But uh, what do we do first? So first we um, do the apples. So I have a separate plate with apples, and we put the honey on it. And I figured this out. It took me a while to figure it out. You can put the honey on beforehand. Because honey is remarkably slow. They say slow as molasses, but I find honey to be much slower. So you stick in the little thing, and you pull it out, and you have to drizzle it. It takes quite a long time. You could do that drizzling part beforehand. There you go. Helpful advice from Rabbi Olowski. Anyway, so you drizzle it on, and we pass it around. Now, this is what's important. Yeah, You might think that you do the apple first, because that's the minute. You don't you have to make a bracha on one of the shivaminim. Now, some of these are fruits and some of these are vegetables. Some of them are baypre adama and some of them are baypre eats. Um, so, given the choice, which one do you do? The tamar or the um, rimon? Well, you go to the pasik. Eretz chita sa'ira gefen te'ena verimon. The rimon is number five. Eretz zeishem dvash. Dvash are the tamarim. So you might think, well, the tamarim are number seven. Right, but it says Eretz. So going from Eretz to rimon is five, and going from Eretz to uh, the dates is only two. So first you take the date, and you... Make a bracha by prayer eights on it, and you have in mind the rimon and the apple. And uh, I think those are all of your eights options coming up. Then you make a by prayer adama. 
Which one do you make it on? I don't know. Whichever one you like. Whatever's your favorite. Yeah. Probably not the gourd. Probably not the black-eyed peas. I'm going to go with the beets. And uh, you make the bipreya dhamma and have in mind all of them. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, I made hamotzi already, so why am I making a separate bracha? The answer is that you make a separate bracha on anything that's not considered part of the Suda. And since nobody sits down at the beginning of the Suda and says, hey, let's eat some small portion of gourd, so then obviously the gourd is not part of the meal. It's coming as a separate thing. So it requires a separate bracha. Fine. Now you go through all that. Now we come to our fish course. Um, I don't have the recipe here. Lena will put it up on the uh, on, on the website, but I use the sweet and sour fish recipe from the above of a cookbook. I've tried a whole bunch of different ones, and this is very popular. Um, I used to do it with carp because the fish heads were carp. Um, my kids didn't like it with carp because it has so many bones. So at some point we switched to salmon fillet. What about the fish heads? comes with the carp. Well, I don't know about in America, but here in Israel, you can buy just the fish head. It's a limited market. People are not really uh, vying for them. Uh, not a lot of meat on them. But if you throw in a few fish heads into your pot and you make the sweet and sour salmon, you can use those fish heads as well using the same recipe. It comes out sweet, delicious. And, um, and, uh, uh, so first we do the Rosh Hadag. I always try to go first because as you move down the line, it's a lot less uh, to actually find on that fish head to eat. <laughs> and then we serve the sweet and sour fish. And we make the bra- they make the uh, Yihiratzon on Dogim. That's what we do. Now, when we get to the meal, then we do the carrots. That's the one thing that I left out. And the carrots, I have a recipe that I got from my mother, which is the following. I don't know if I ever gave this recipe. You take a bag of carrots. You could take two bags of carrots. It works better if you have real carrots, you know, fresh carrots. But uh, if not, Ms. Nami, you can use frozen carrots as well. And um, you put them in a pan. And then you put flanken on top of it. Uh, for those of you from Amer- from Israel, that would be like strips of asado. Yeah. And you put it on top. And on the flanken, you just put a uh, little salt and some garlic powder. And you cook it. Cook it till the flanken starting to look uh, brown. Then you pour off all the juice. Pour it all off. And pour honey on top of it. How much honey? Amount of honey where you say to yourself, that's definitely enough. Add a little more. (laughs) Now cover it over and let it uh, continue to cook on a relatively low temperature. And uh, the carrots will get soft and the flan can become sweet. And it's absolutely delicious. Now, I've made this over the years and each year... I add a little less carrots because my kids really like the meat. And they're not so thrilled about the carrots. So we have enough carrots to be able to do a simmon. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, the meat itself is considered very, very delicious. And my kids really enjoy that. So that's what we do with that. Um, 
That's the simanim. That's the simanim. I'm going to give you one more recipe that I don't think I gave you. And that is we, uh, we have for many years served the first night of Rosh Hashanah, um, sweet chicken. Sweet chicken is my recipe. Um, it's one of the reasons I have diabetes and, uh, and maybe you will too. <laughs> but I, I, I make it using my own uh, creativity. Uh, so I don't have an exact recipe here for you. Um, I take a pot. Um, I would say like a four quart saucepan, maybe. And I put in, well, let's say two thirds of a container of ketchup. I put in a can of pineapple cubes. I put in probably about a half a large container of raisins. And I add some Coca-Cola. Can you use Coca-Cola Zero? I don't know. I've never tried. Like at this point, it's going to make a difference. (laughs) And I add brown sugar. If I'm feeling inspired, I'll add a little splash of soy sauce, just for contrast. Yeah. And I bring it to a boil and let it simmer until it gets very thick. And then you have to taste it. Sometimes a little needs a little more of this, sometimes a little more of that. Sometimes I add maple syrup, sometimes I don't. But this is the basic uh, recipe that I do for it. Now, I'll tell you how I make chicken with a sauce. There's different ways of doing it. I make roast chicken. Roast chicken means that I take a pan and I slice up an onion and I put it on the bottom and I take the pieces of chicken. Obviously, we're talking about a cut-up chicken. Yeah. I put garlic and paprika on both sides and I put it in the oven and I let it cook until it's mostly cooked. Uh, then I bring it out, I let it cool. I pour off all of the juice, all of the gravy, the pan gravy, so that it's almost completely gone. And then I put on the sauce. Because if you keep the pan juice in there, then it gets watered down. When it just has this sauce, it cooks in. And I put it back in the oven, uncovered a little bit just so that it absorbs the sauce. And that's it. Then I cover it and I heat it up. Um, when it comes out right, people are sucking the bones. That's how delicious this is. And, uh, it's sweet. Why? Because there's a minute to eat sweet things, Rosh Hashanah night. So we have the sweet fish and we have the sweet chicken and we have the sweet simis. And, uh, we usually put out a salad just to fool people. And, uh, and that's the idea. The idea is that there is a simon to eat these foods and say, you hear it sewn on them. Because Simana Milsahi, so I, I want to talk about what I think that means. There's an old Hasidic story where the king gets angry at the prince and throws him out of the palace. And uh, he has no idea how to make it on his own. You can see this because um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are forced to live on like a, I don't know, like a, you know, $50 million a year or something like that. And they just don't know how to get by. It's, uh, it's very difficult, you know, when you're a royal to have to make it on that kind of a salary. It's, it's heartbreaking, really. I mean, I just, you know, uh, you have to cry real tears for these people. It's you know, heartbreaking. But, uh, you know, if you're used to being a royal and you get thrown out with nothing, 
you don't get any any uh, salary at all. You don't get, get uh, any means of support. You might not know what to do, right? So uh, he throws out the prince, and the prince has, of course, no way of making a living, and he's living on the street and uh, digging through the garbage can for leftovers and wearing rags. And, and after a certain period of time, the king felt bad, and he sends out his trusted advisor to find his son, and he finds his son lying in a gutter, you know, hungry, dirty, and rags. And he looks at him, it's heartbreaking. So he says, I've come from your father, the king. And he says, yes. He says, the king wants to know if you want anything. He says, well, I have to tell you, it's very cold. I'd love to be able to get a coat. And he says to him, you dummy. The king is offering you the chance to be able to go back to the palace and be a prince. And that's all you can think of is a, is a coat. So there's a story with Levi Yitzhak Badichev. I'm sure I've told this story before. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite um, stories, so I do tend to tell it a lot. But, you know, a good story is like a song. You know, Frank Sinatra spent the last uh, 30 years of his life singing eight songs, and nobody ever said, boo, we heard that one already. <laughs> so I feel that way about a good story. You know, Shalom Shadron told a lot of the same stories, yeah. So... Um, it was Kol Nidre night. And uh, everybody's there. They're saying to Zaka, everybody's in shul, they're waiting to start Kol Nidre. And uh, who's starting to get late, even for Hasidim. So the, the Gabbai says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, what are we waiting for? He says, Yasala isn't here. Sure enough, he scans the shul and he sees there's one empty seat Yasla the tail of the seat. He says, Rebbe, you want me to go get him? He says, yeah. So the guy runs through the streets of Bedichif till he's on the outskirts of town, this little shack where Yasla the tail lives and he's banging on the door and finally Yasla comes to the door in his pajamas. He says, Yasla, what are you doing? It's Yom Kippur. The whole town is in Shul. He says, I'm not coming. Says, what do you mean you're not coming? The Rebbe's waiting for you. He's not starting until you come. Says, I'm on strike. Says, you're on strike. God's going to strike you. What are you, what are you talking about? Get your ass to come. Says, I'll only come if the Rebbe promises to give me a moxer. Okay. He runs back to Shul. And of course, no one knows what's going on. There's a whole tumult. And he says, Yasla said he'll only come if the Rebbe promises to give him a moxer. He says, tell him I promise. Okay. He runs back. He's all dressed. He grabs him by the hand, runs into Shul. And the Rebbe hands him a machser, and he sits down, and they start, kol nidre. And the whole night they're davening. And the whole night, people are looking in their machser. They're looking at Yosela. They're looking at the Rebbe. They're looking at Yosela. They're looking at their machser. <laughs> anyway, davening ends. You know, special tefillas you say at the end, that only the most pious say that year. Everyone was pious, you know. And nobody was leaving. And finally, it was the end of davening, and it was time to go. And uh, and everyone's hanging around. They know they're in the middle of a chassidish story, and they want to find out how it ends. So the Rebbe says, Yosla, what happened? 
And Yosef says, well, and the whole town goes. And he says, okay, you all know me here. I've lived here my whole life. I got married. I raised a couple of children. Baruch Hashem, I married them off. They all moved away. They're doing very well. And uh, I, I made a good living. I was the tailor in town. I was the only tailor in town. And, uh, you know, it was very nice. You know, I made a good living. And uh, finally, my children were married. And I was looking forward to spending uh, the rest of my life with my wife, you know, until I grew old. And then my wife died. And she was everything to me. And I didn't know if I could go on. And I said, okay, Hashem's good to me. I still have my house paid for where, where uh, I live. I've got the tailor shop uh, uh, downstairs. You know, uh, I'm still making good business. I've got my savings for when I get old. I'm okay. I'll be all right. And uh, then I started to develop arthritis. It was very hard for me to sew. And it wasn't coming out so well. And it was taking me a long time. Other tailors moved in. So, okay, you know, most of my people stayed with me anyway. I was making a living, not as good a living as I was, but I was managing. And then my eyesight started to go. And uh, it took me a long time just to thread the needle. So I couldn't see it. Between my eyesight and the arthritis, I was going very slow. Well, I basically lost almost all my customers, except my most loyal customers. And I was going very slowly. I didn't want to touch my savings because I needed that when I was too old to work. But I said, okay, you know. So before Rosh Hashanah, of course, there was a big backlog of clothes. And people said to me, Yosla, take your time. Don't worry about it. You know, we've been with you all these years. We're sure you'll manage. And then, you know, just before Rosh Hashanah, there was the fire and my house burnt down. And everyone's clothes were destroyed. I had to pay them back for my savings. I was practically destitute. I moved into the shack at the end of town because that's all that I could afford. And I said, okay, okay, there are people in worse shape than me. I invited in people even poorer than me to share my Rosh Hashanah meal. I didn't have much, but whatever I had. And then I got up this morning, and I realized I don't have a machsa for Yom Kippur. I lost in the fire. I can't die without a machsa. I said, Akush Baruch Hu, even a machsa you won't give me? I said, that's it, I'm going on strike until I get a machsa. And uh, and then when the Rebbe said, he'd give me a machzer, so I said, okay. So people were nodding along, and suddenly the Rebbe went, let out this terrible sigh. He said, Yasala, Yasala, you had God by the throat, and all you asked for was a machzer? You could have asked for the geula, and you would have gotten it. But you think small. Because unfortunately, we all think small. Simona Milsehi. I want a sweet year. I want a good year. But what do I want? Think about that for a second. You're going to the, you're going to the King of Kings, Melech Malchem who could give you anything you want, and he's coming on Rosh Hashanah, and he's saying to you. What do you want for this coming year? Our friend tells an amazing story. He says he was speaking in, in, uh, in Square. And part of the, the deal was that he got a private meeting with the Rebbe. So he says, okay, so I'm going to ask the Rebbe for a bracha. He says, I spoke to my wife. I spoke to my children. 
I spoke to my son-in-laws, my daughter-in-laws. I discussed with everybody, what should I ask the Rebbe for? And then I went to Mincha. And I said, my goodness, I'm standing before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And I'm worried when I'm going to ask the Rebbe for, what am I going to... HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to me, what do you want? And Rosh Hashanah is the Yom Adin. It's when all of the Shefa opens, everything comes down, everything's decided for the next year. What do you want? You got to think about it, long and hard. I told this story already. Uh, I had a massive heart attack and a bypass operation. And the fellow who did the angiogram said, I don't know why you're still alive. The surgeon said, it was touch and go. I didn't think he was going to make it. And uh, obviously I survived. And before Rosh Hashanah, somebody says to me, so what do you want from this coming year? And I said, just a better year than this one. <laughs> I had a heart surgery, you know. It's rough. Recovery is rough. In fact, my brother had a heart attack and a bypass afterwards, and he ran back to work too quickly, and he took him a much longer recovery time. Luckily, I had no jobs, and I wasn't doing anything, so I had a lot of leisure time to heal. But I said, look, just a better year than this year. And he said to me, um, uh, look, you know, uh, you sound like an ingrate. You just told me that two doctors told you you were supposed to be dead. And the Kosh kept you alive. And you're complaining? I said, you're right. I want a year just like this year. Because, uh, you know, getting a heart attack and getting bypass and, you know, all those kind of things, they're rough. But consider the alternative. <laughs> Definitely rougher. Yeah. It was one year before Shoshana. Someone said to me, asked me about my kids. How's this one doing? You know, she got married. No, I said, oh, she's divorced. Oh. Well, how's this one doing? She's been married for a few years. Any kindleach? I said, no. Oh. Well, how's this one doing? I haven't seen in a while. You know, um, that one has cancer. Oh. Well, Thomas Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Think about what do you want? Simone Milsi, he means... Eat something sweet and say, I want a sweet year. You know, destroy our enemies. Give us gzeris taivis. Yeah. Let us, let us increase like fish. Let's, all the, all the wonderful brachas that we're saying, say it and eat it and taste the sweetness and say, that's what I want for this coming year. This year is almost over. We're going to stand before Kaddish Baruch Hu, and the way Rabbi Meshachar once described it is, you have a certain amount of life and bracha that is deposited in your account on Rosh Hashanah. And comes the end of Elo, it runs out. Now your account is empty. And you're going to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and you're going to ask him what you want him to put in. What do you want him to put in? So that's the question. What kind of a year do you want for this coming year? Simani Milsa. Hopefully it will be a Shana Toiva Umasuka. A good, sweet year that should be filled with life and health and Paranosa and Yerushamayim and Nachas from the Kindalach 
and all good things for you, your family, and all of Klai Yisrael. Amen. And now we come to the question and answer portion of our program. Anonymous asks, are the other planets the previous worlds that Hashem created and then destroyed? No, because they're here. If he destroyed them, Mistama, they wouldn't be here. Take a little time to reflect on that. <laughs> Anonymous asks, why do you think modern art became so popular? It seems to me that it's random splashes of paint. Um, it's an interesting question. I'm not um, an art maven. There is a chokhmah to art. There's a chachmah to the color, there's a chachmah to the shapes, etc. Now, is it possible that someone who doesn't know anything, someone could just splash paint on a thing and pass it off as a as a masterpiece and he'll fool the you know, the dilettantes who don't really know anything about art? Yeah. But the ones that are classic, you can actually sit down and talk to experts and they'll tell you why the use of color, the use of cubism, the, the shapes, the way it's being expressed, all those kind of things, uh, are, are a way of being able to express it. Now, the truth of the matter is, um, I'm not drawn to that sort of art. To me, uh, art should be somewhat representational of reality. Uh, although it can obviously be symbolic and bring in other ideas. The colors are um, very, very significant because when you want to get a color, you, know, you want to make a cloud. So when you're a little kid, you know, you make a cloud and you color it in white. But the truth is, if you look at a cloud, you'll see pink, you'll see blue, you'll see other colors going on over there. And that's what an uh, artist is trying to capture. And uh, so there's some art that I can look at and I say, okay, I, I understand more or less what they were trying to do here. <laughs> some of it I look at it and I say, I, I just remember the, uh, the we had this uh, machine that would spin around with a little card and you'd squeeze um, paint on it when I was a kid, you know. And that's what it looks like. So uh, I can't say. Like I say, it's it's not my field. But uh, I suppose it's the same thing as poetry. Certain people think of poetry as iambic pentameter. And that's all that they know. That's what they consider poetry. So when you have free verse or blank verse or haiku or things like this, those are different forms. And um, and you have to appreciate that there's a certain, you know, uh, logic to it and cadence to it. And it's going by a, different, uh, by a different system. So some people like it simple. Some people like their music simple. Uh, Ramesh Shapiro once said, you know, you go out to suburbia and everything is just the same green trimmed lawns. That's not really beautiful. Beautiful is contrast, giant mountains and valleys, you know, things that make contrast. Things that are ordinary are ordinary. Oh, here's a song, an average song. It's not too short. It's not too long. It's not too high. It's not too low. 
It's not too fast. It's not too slow. It's not too old. It's not too new. It's not too joy. It's not too blue. It's also not too good, my friend. So ain't you glad this is the end? <laughs> There's no classical music. It's, it's complicated with different music and things like that. that there's a chachma to it. So like I say, uh, I'm prepared to say that perhaps there are aspects to art that I don't have, but Nunu. <laughs> Anonymous asks, do animals have neshamas? The Derech Hashem says no, yet the Kava Yosha and many Hasidic stories speak of animals building Gilgulim. I'm trying to understand if the Ramchal view is incompatible with Hasidic thinking, in which case, what's in the Kudus HaMachlekes? Or can the two views be reconciled? Being that you have given Masil Sasharim Shiram for many years, and I was hoping you could provide perspective on the Ramchal. Rav Moshe Shapiro uh, learned by Rav Desla. And Rav Desla's Mahalach was that everything fits together. It's going with the Maharal's uh, Mahalach that there's no Machlekes by Agadita. And everything can fit together. And so, uh, Hasidic thought and Kabbalah and Musr and uh, everything is able to form together to form uh, one whole. Um, I was once driving Ramosha to Bnei Brak. I had this chus. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, the Mahalach is that everything can be put together to, to make one whole. I said, uh, what about Rav Nachman Breslov? He says, he also can. You just have to understand what he's saying because he speaks in very abstract terms. He said once that very often the Maharal and the Ramchal are saying the same thing, but they use completely different words. So you have to know what the words mean that each one is saying to figure out how to fit it all together. So he says, Gamze uh, shali you can You can put this in too. So, uh, so of course everything has to fit together. So the answer is like this. Do animals have neshamas? No. They have a nefesh. It's called the nefesh Bahamas. There is no doggy heaven. You could have a nice dog. He call him rough, call him spot. You know what I mean? He's very loyal. He, he barks, he this, he bring you a newspaper. When he dies, there's nothing that exists afterwards. He goes into the ground and he turns into dust and is reabsorbed. But um, uh, what about the idea that there are Gilgulim? That's not a Nefesh Bahamas. It's a Neshama Bahamas. The Bahamas doesn't have a Nefesh What you're saying is that a human being can sometimes go inside of an animal to get a Tikkun. That's the story with the talking fish and... and uh, New Square uh, with the uh, with the um, the famous story over there, that whole thing, uh, where he says he had to come back as a fish for a tikkun. That's the idea of the famous cat in Yerushalayim. There used to be the vecker of Meir Sharm used to go around and wake everybody up for slichas. And one guy got upset and poured hot water on him. The next day he died. And after that, a cat would follow him around wherever he went. And finally he turned and said, I'm Michael you. And the cat walked away and was never seen again. So that doesn't mean the cat has an ashama 
or the fish has a neshama, it means that a human being's neshama went into him. Is that possible? Sure it is. It's possible for your neshama to go into other people and other objects. Yeah, that, that's a possibility too. But that doesn't mean that the animal has a neshama. I think that's the distinction. And uh, finally, Anonymous asks, I love the show. Thank you. Question, I've always been uncomfortable with the mitzvah of killing the seven nations and a Amalek, including women and children. I think most of us would be horrified at the idea of going into an Amaleki village and actually killing everyone. Parents holding their children, pregnant women going into the nursery and killing all the babies, nurses and staff, grandparents, school teachers, artists, musicians, doctors, special need children, etc. It's absolutely horrifying and sounds exactly like the Nazis, Chas Shalom. What's your approach to a mitzvah that at face value stands for unspeakable viciousness and brutality? Okay. Although there's a mitzvah to wipe out a Amalek, and although there's a mitzvah to wipe out the seven nations, they're two completely different ones. Right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to the seven nations, and the Kananim were the epitome, or if you have a reading vocabulary, really, the epitome of evil. In fact, the Svazema says that cities that had walls around them from the time when Yehoshua captured Israel have a special level of Kedusha. Why? Because the Canaanim were able to sense Kedusha and they built a wall around it and did the most depraved things they could to cancel it out. The Canaanim were known for their depravity. I mean, terrible, terrible things. So the Jews came to Israel and they gave them the following message. Say, listen, you're very evil. Okay. God can tolerate evil, but not in Eretz Israel. So if you want to be evil, go someplace else and be evil. But if you stay here and be evil in this holy place, then you're going to get destroyed. So the Girgashi said, hey, makes sense to me. And they moved to some beautiful place in Africa, it says, and they lived a very... um uh, comfortable, evil life, and uh, they left Eretzah. Now, to be fair, the Torah says the same thing about us. If you are evil, I'm going to bring people, and they're going to wipe you out. And the advantage that we had was Vinishantem, which is 852 years. If we would have stayed here for 852 years being evil, we would have been totally wiped out. But Hashem allowed Bavel to take us in the Gullahs after 850 years, but we were kicked out of land. You want to be evil? Don't do it in Eretzel. And that was the deal. You can leave. Now, do you understand what it takes for a people? And you see this this people come in and they split the ocean and walk across on dry land. They're surrounded by the clouds of glory. There's a pillar of fire going in front of them. Mun falls from the sky. Uh, a well rolls along with them. And you know all the miracles that happened in Egypt. And now they're coming into Israel and they stop the Jordan River, which to my mind, on some level, is freakier then Kriyas Yamsuf. Because Kriyas Yamsuf, the two things, puts into two walls. But this, the river keeps flowing. It just keeps flowing up into the air. You can't split a river. And you're just looking at that. And the Aron flies the people across. Who in their right mind would fight these people at this point? 
<laughs> you gotta be crazy. At that point, you're like, okay, we're done. We're out of here. Uh, I got to be out of my mind to fight these people. I have to be suicidal. I have to be so evil that I'm a suicide bomber that I'm willing to blow myself up just in order to kill the Jewish people. Sorry. Sorry. You have forfeited your right to be treated mercifully at that point. That's the Torah's approach. Now, what about a Malik? Talk about evil. The Jewish people came out of Egypt. Chris Yamsuf. And read Oz Yashir. Every nation in the world was terrified. Everyone was shaking. Hearts were melting. Nobody would dare ever lift a hand up against a Jew. Amalek, who were in the south of Israel, forced march themselves all the way out into the desert so that they could appear as if they just bumped into Klai Yisrael and attacked them, knowing they were going to get killed. I just want to open up the possibility for other people to kill the Jewish people. Because my entire existence in this world is for one purpose, to keep God out. Yad Bekes Ka. Yeah? Hashem's name is not complete. His kisei is not complete. A Amalek works throughout history to keep God out and to fight the Jewish people which if you read the writings of Adolf Hitler, it's exactly what he said. Yeah. He wanted to destroy the Jews. He wanted to kill all the Jews. Uh, Lucy Davidowitz in The War Against the Jews writes that that was his main, uh, if you don't say that's his main uh, war aim, then you can't explain a lot of stuff that he did. More than anything, he wanted to destroy the Jews. That's an evil that's unbelievable. And Hashem says, listen to me. And I'm telling you this because I'm God. As long as these people exist, they are going to destroy everything that is good in this world. I may have told this once upon a time that uh, Mati Berger says that uh, he was in a class in Johns Hopkins being taught by a priest. And at some point, the priest looks at him and says, you know, I've never understood why the Jews have a problem with the Holocaust. I, as a Catholic, have a problem with the Holocaust. Because it's obvious that the Nazis were pure evil come down to the world. And pure evil wants to destroy good. So why didn't he want to destroy the Catholic Church? Why didn't he want to kill the Pope? So if I was a Jew, I would say, well, that's because Jews represent the true good in this world and the true truth. And so obviously evil wants to destroy good. But as a Catholic, for the life of me, I can't figure out why he only wanted to destroy the Jews and not the Catholic Church. So, a Amalek are those Nazis. So now you go back into the past, knowing what you know now, and you see a kid, Adolf Schickelgruber. Uh, that was his name before his mother remarried, a guy named Hitler. And uh, you see him there, and you have the chance to kill him. And you say, but he's just a child. But I'm telling you, it's Adolf Hitler. I know what's going to happen. There's going to be tens of millions of people who are going to die because of this guy. I know, but right now. No, no, but I'm telling you, you know for a fact. That's misplaced Rachamim. And that's why the Chazal say it was the misplaced Rachamim of Shaul that allowed the Jewish people to almost be totally wiped out by Haman. 
misplaced Rachamim. And you look and you say, well, what's going to happen? How bad could it be? But I, I'm telling you, when you look at this, every one of them is a Hitler. They're going to destroy you. And not just you, they're going to chase me out of the world. They're going to destroy all of the good. There's never going to be a salvation. There's never going to be, as long as this person exists. Is it unpleasant? Sure, it's unpleasant. But if you see some guy on top of a roof firing into a schoolyard of children, and the only way you can stop him is to kill him, and you don't, you are a very cruel person. And the kindness would be to shoot him and save the lives of all the innocents that he's killing. As uh, Eloy Wiesel said to President Ronald Reagan as he was receiving a special award, and uh, Reagan was going to speak about, you know, the German dead who died in the war, going to uh, a cemetery in Bitburg, Germany. But there were also SS officers buried there. Eli Weisel said, Mr. Reagan, I implore you not to go. Your place is with the victims, not with the murderers. And I will always side with the victims, not with the murderers, not with the criminals. When uh, this guy comes into this uh, barista and he's going to beat him up and possibly kill him. And the guy manages to get a knife and kill the guy. And that guy gets arrested. That doesn't make any sense. He's the victim. Yeah, but he got killed. I know because he was trying to kill him. And that's how you have to look at everybody from a Malik. That has always been the Jewish approach. What was the difference between them and the Nazis? The Nazis wanted to kill us because they were a Malik. The quote from Hitler, if I recall it correctly, goes like this. It is true we are barbarians. It is an honorable title. The Jews have inflicted two wounds on mankind, circumcision on their body and morality on their soul. These are Jewish inventions. This war is between the Germans and the Jews. All else is facade and illusion. He hated us because we were moral. He hated us because we wanted to make the world a better place. He didn't. That's the difference. Jews throughout history have only made contributions and contributions. All the lies we spread about us, about the terrible things that we've done, we know they're all lies. Jews give to the world. Jews help. And so... uh those who fight against us, those are the evildoers. And if you don't destroy them, they're going to destroy us, they're going to chase God out of the world, and ultimately they're going to destroy everything, because that's all that they know is to destroy. So like I say, what's the difference? Hashem told us. He says, that's, that's Hitler. You want to kill him? Kill him. If you don't, you'll have 50 million dead people on your head. So see if you want to be uh, nice or not. Now, we don't know. You don't know. You don't know. But if you do know for sure, and you have misplaced mercy, it's going to come back to destroy the Jewish people. Haman was going to kill every man, woman, and child of the Jewish people without any mercy because of the misplaced mercy of Shaul. 
Okay, that's it for this week. If you want to find out more about the show, you can go to my website, RaviLasky.com. You can send an email. You can make a comment. You can sponsor an episode. Uh, you can sign up for one of our online shiurim. And uh, that's it for this episode for this year. Not the Raviolowski show year, but for this year. And uh, what can I tell you? A good gebench to your. And I give you the bracha that my mother used to give me when I would call her before Rosh Hashanah. I wish you everything you wish for yourself. And that's what we spoke about this week. Figure out what it is you wish for yourself. I'm David Olavsky, and this is the Rabbi Olavsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Torah and Simcha, ready to go. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Knowledge and wisdom will help you grow. Lots of fun in every episode, and we don't have to rhyme. No, we don't. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show on RabbiOrlovsky.com. Torah, anytime, YouTube, and more. It's Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Torah and Simba, ready to go. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Till next time, till we meet again. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Show.